Welcome to the main course. It's Sunday, and I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My partner in crime is on the road, and uh, he will be back next week. Uh, we are sponsored today by the Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. So um, here we are. Uh, we are in the back of Roberta's uh, in Bushwick, two. 61 Moore Street. Brunch is being served. And thanks to the um, nightmare of the train system right now, the restaurant actually has some tables. So um, if you can bike or, or <laughs> walk over here, I recommend it. It's unusually uncrowded. Um, we have a great show lined up today. Our first guest is uh, the wonderful and eminent Michael Lomonaco from Porterhouse, New York, um, one of the great steakhouses uh, that is gracing the city right now. Hi, Michael. Thank Hi. you so much for coming in. It's great to be here. And um, uh, Jack, I think we need to turn Michael's mic up a little bit. Or you need to I talk right I into it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I was just so. looking at old people. Well, I know. We have a big picture window here in the studio, and you can see everybody, and they can see us, kind of like the fishbowl experience. And so um, it's uh, great entertainment for the kids, I can tell you that. They love it. So, Michael, this is your first trip to Roberta's and your first time on the Heritage Radio Network. Were you aware of the network before this? Did you know about Yes, us? actually, uh, yes. Actually, yes. And uh, probably from uh, iTunes or something. Uh, yeah. art, and definitely some great press articles. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is that there's so much great dialogue on food. And this, I think, is an important place for it. Absolutely. Well, I don't think there's any other broadcast medium that has quite the range uh, and depth of information about uh, the agricultural system. So we have two shows on farming. We have, you know, this show, which showcases chefs like you, but also, like, for instance, my guest after you is Oren Hesterman, who's been in the forefront of trying to change the food system from sort of the, the ground up, like seeing it as a system as opposed to a series of small component parts. But um, I just want to give a little background information in case there are somebody who's been living under a rock for the last 25 years and doesn't know um, what a great CV you have. Um, now, you started out working with um, at Le Cirque, right? Was that your first gig? Well, you Your know, first major gig? Actually, yeah, exactly. Right, almost right out of school. It's yeah. true because I went, to, I went to City Tech, which is a great, you know, the um, New York City College of Technology. Right. And it's such a great school for people who... Uh, don't know what to do with their lives. How interesting. <laughs> it's a technical college. It's yeah. part of City University. And the amazing, it's in Brooklyn. You know, it's right on J Street. And right. it's a huge, huge school, actually. They've mm-hmm. got 15,000 students and four-year programs. And But cooking and hospitality and cooking and baking were one of their original programs. And, amazing. And like the Culinary Institute of America, it all started after World War II for returning vets. Right. And uh, City Tech started their program up right after, was well, sort of during the Korean War for returning vets right. as job training. And you know what? It, when I went to school in the 80s, it was just sort of the best of the chefs who were working in New York City in the 60s and the 70s who were teaching. So it was very hands-on, skills-oriented cooking. That's fantastic, because you never hear about schools like that. I actually wanted to say to you that, um, you know how they have those art institutes in every right. city? It sounds like right. it's kind of like that, right. but maybe better. Well, the the thing is, it's part of City University, right. so of course it's very reasonably priced. Exactly. And, but that's an important thing, because, you know... 
not a knock on the other on the big schools, but they are for profit organizations, and they charge a bomb, and they do. They charge yeah. a ton of money. I think it's like forty grand to go for nine months to the French Culinary Institute. It's a lot of it's you a lot come of out with a really big debt, and we had Nils Noren on a couple right. weeks ago, who's a great guy. I really is. like him a lot, and we were saying like, if you come out of school, like what what are your expectations in terms of how much money you're going to make? And the reality is, you ain't going to make a lot of money no. as a line cook or no. a prep cook. No, and it definitely takes time to to get anywhere even if you have the greatest dream of having your own place look at this Roberta's is unbelievable because yeah. you know uh, I mean I know Bushwick and Williamsburg I grew up I was born in Brooklyn mm. I you know I uh, I've had a, a lot of varied jobs in my past and so I know but this is you know it's an incredible thing to have your own place where you, you know you can build it and do it your own way but it still takes time to get there and carrying that kind of debt after school is is a tough thing i would think so and skills are skills the more you have the better you do yeah absolutely so um anyway you went right from school basically to work with uh, danielle boulou and alain sayak at le cirque then you took over the 21 club and totally revamped that now wasn't ann rosenswag the chef before you that's right in fact i worked for ann because um and ann was and still is, you know, one of one of America's foremost chefs who, in the revolution of, of really of the 80s, yeah. uh, was doing her own thing. Right. And her great restaurant was Arcadia. That's and right. she was, um, she was, uh, I was going to say, the consulting chef to 21. It was very complicated what they did. With I do t- remember she took a lot of bad press for having the $21 or the $25 hamburger. Well, she more, was the first one to do that. But more than, you know, the 21 burger, all right, ham, you know, burgers are like, oh my God, we go anywhere. Can you believe the explosion of burger joints? They, It's unbelievable. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I sold a lot of burgers when I was chef at 21 you know i was the chef for seven years after ann but i worked for ann as a i was a a line cook i was a saucier sous chef and she was the chef the executive chef of 21 while she had her own restaurant arcadia arcadia was really a sweet place yeah you know 50 seats it was really really lovely lovely and so she was doing you know at 21 is this old you know this old institution and it needed a revamp in the kitchen and ann started that off and right uh, you know, I continued uh, for seven years after she left. Now, would would you say that Anne's style was like the beginning of what they call new American cuisine? Do you think, like she and Larry Ford Jones? Oh, definitely. To meet and how do you define new American cuisine? I've never really understood that, and yet so many chefs call their restaurants new American. There's actually a category when you look up menu pages. That's right. You know, certainly, you know, Jonathan Waxman mm-hmm. and Alice Waters and that wave of new American was, uh, it was, it was fresh, um, which is shocking because, you know, there was a time when a lot of things weren't fresh. You just couldn't, you couldn't get it. Right. You know, I mean, even, you know, people were, the idea of, of uh, the green market was, a, a novel idea, not necessarily a new one, but it was something that those restaurants were using. And it was sort of the freshness of, of cooking. And that was in new American cooking. And I think it was really about this very more personal approach to food and cooking rather than being historical recipe driven, which is what restaurants were up until the 80s. You know, everybody really was cooking out of the same uh, uh, playbook. Right, you know, maybe it was uh, Escoffier. It was French driven, and it had become to a combination of those two things: continental, so right. which was the thing of the '60s and the '70s. You get to the '80s, and people are 
finding self-expression and really in fairness that whole first wave of american chefs that was a new thing they were college educated and you know until the 70s the the irs considered a chef a domestic so that's the category you know you fell in if yeah. when you filed your taxes you filed as a domestic wow and they changed that to executive chef as a professional category oh, that was yeah. a big they don't change. have it as a celebrity no. category no. now no that's another that's another <laughs> that's another thing <laughs> But yeah, I, you didn't get it. You didn't, you didn't like ride that star chef thing. Like you could have so easily bought into that. Um, I'm from Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> I. Uh, yeah, you don't have the accent, right? No. It's <laughs> like, don't have the French accent. No, not that Eric Ribeiro is the no. only star. I mean, he re- he was a reluctant comer to the table of star chefery, and it's only because he's so damn good looking. I think that uh, people like persuaded him that he could get away with it. He's a really good friend. We, oh, I we, love we, him. Yeah, he's a, he's a great man. guy. He's very he's a very down to earth guy. Yes, totally. And, and you know, his food is excellent. It's you know, Really, he's is. perfect. He really is. But uh, I'm not sure what that star chef thing is. But I, I tell you, you know, I just I like cooking. I mean, I like. Yes, I mean, you really I really like doing. I like it. doing it. Like yeah. I cook for my. I cook for for you us. You know, I cook for my family, and That's nice. uh, but uh, also, uh, you know, I really this was something I chose to do because I really was attracted to food as an expression of of something of love, of hospitality, of uh, of giving to others. I mean, mm-hmm. I I really got into the into into food and cooking for the uh, closeness to the to the the. Uh, the audience, the end user, right. the, the, di- well, the diner. Let's bring up the fact that you had a background in theater and that you were you had been an aspiring actor before you got into the culinary business. An aspiring cab driver, an aspiring electrician, <laughs> and aspiring... Ooh, really? Electrical, huh? Well, that's, that's a why, handy skill. No, no I'll, I'll tell you, coming out here to Williamsburg and driving around like Bushwick a little bit, you know, there are, there are a lot of warehouses out here, yes. and I used to be it's a stagehand. I used to be a stagehand and come out here... <gasps> To uh, to work on uh, um, on, on Metropolitan building sets? building sets for Metropolitan Opera, NBC Studios. No there were paintings, scene painting studios out here, and things like. Oh yeah! Oh, that's so cool. So coming out here this morning just kind of makes me wow. I used to real nostalgia trip. Well, it's really changed, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, it sure has. I, I mean, mean, it's amazing. The whole sort of Bedford Avenue Williamsburg thing. I mean, I just. I mean, my my cousin brought bought property into in that neighborhood like twenty five years ago, and is now sitting on a small gold mine. I mean, he calls himself the man with the golden mop because basically managing a building and being a janitor. Is, <laughs> but he is making a fortune on the rents. I but mean, you know, honestly, it's such a it, it's such a refreshing thing because I think artists, uh, writers, chefs, uh, the, the creative spirit of new york has found another home another yeah. another place to be and i think that people worried about that 10 15 years ago like what's gonna happen I mean, yeah because when soho became so commercial right and then galleries started moving over to the west side right. and that's really not a residential area that's very nice no not at all. so and it was expensive and and it's beautiful housing it's great yeah and you can see the sky uh you know you're it's not a bonus, so, it's, it's it? a big and there are great parks and you know there's great proximity to everything so it's it's an exciting thing and of course restaurants and food i think they're always the first uh, yeah. Or almost the first to create um, to create a neighborhood, and this is a real New York neighborhood, so it's exciting. It you is. Know, I grew up in Brooklyn, so it's exciting to see a neighborhood really come back and reinvent itself. That's right, revive because it was a thriving neighborhood a hundred years ago, and then it kind of fell into disrepair. Because I have a friend who's a hundred, and she grew up in Williamsburg. Uh-huh. 
There you, know. you go. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about your fantastic restaurant, Porterhouse, New York City. Um, you, it's a steakhouse. You opened in 2006. Um, what's it like running a steakhouse? Yeah, you know, really, I have to say, it was a real uh, my. It really it's a bit of a departure for it, you. Right? It really boggled my mind too, because <laughs> it. it, it, it it ain't as easy as it looks. I'll say that. Not that we ever thought it was an easy thing to do, mm. um, and and I mean that because it's um, you know it's it's complicated focusing on primarily one ingredient, yeah, and um, and trying to really get the best and and the the simplicity of cooking it is not as simple as it seems, and and it, it really is a, a historic kind of a traditional american food steakhouses have a and we're, we're close to one here we're close to an, an historic one here yes, in brooklyn right. you know lugers, lugers yeah. and uh you know this great tradition of uh of um beef steaks which are i'm happily seeing revived in places in williamsburg oh you now. mean the beef steak, the beef steak dinners well, yeah Waldi Malouf was yeah. doing that at beacon yeah. waldy's been doing it for 11 years and yeah. now this year there was uh, i saw a whole bunch of them that were happening out here you yeah. know and the beef steak being uh first they had they were political fundraisers was right. what they started as and right. they're great for camaraderie beef is uh, you know, I I got onto the onto the beef thing because there really wasn't availability the, the availability of space at the Time Warner Center, and you know it's it's really midtown, but it's on the edge of uh, Central Park. Yeah. But there was an opening in the marketplace. It really is an underserved um, neighborhood for great beef, and uh, you know there's a lot of definitions of what great great beef is. Well, we're going to be talking about that, yeah. Mike. Definitely talking about that. So let's get into that for a minute, but in a minute. But um, right now, we're going to take a break in a couple minutes. But I just wanted to connect with you for a second about great tips for cooking steaks since Father's Day is coming up and everything. And it's like, and it's such a manly kind of a thing to cook a steak. So, like, what do you guys do at Porterhouse that makes, and I know from experience, your steaks are absolutely outstanding. I mean, they're just amazing. Well, you know, we. Primarily, um, we use primarily prime beef, mm-hmm. and uh, our our big steaks, like a porterhouse, a strip steak, uh, the, the cowboy rib, the big ribeyes, are dry aged for 28 days minimum. Actually, we give them a little bit more time than that. They don't quite continue to age in the way they do in a really controlled aging box. But aged beef, but is- you do that on premises. You're not like. DeBraga and Spitler, for instance, age for other chefs. They age for me, oh, too. they age for you, yeah. And there's also Pat like Lafreda ages for us. Right. And But, um, you know, we do our own cutting. And that's oh. that's a big control factor for me. Yeah. So we have our own butcher, our own butcher room. We cut our own beef. Amazing. And uh, butch- So are you able to buy, like... You'll buy the whole. You know, one of my loin. first jobs. The whole short no, loin. Yeah, short loins. Yeah, that's that's you know, short loins are simple. Yeah. Uh, you need a bandsaw to cut short loins, right. cut porterhouses and strip steaks. Right. But you know, one of my, I, I when I when I was a when I was a kid, I worked for a very short time, uh, uh, doing deliveries and packing stuff on a Friday night for a butcher shop. So I kind of grew up around the butcher business, mm-hmm. and at that time, it really was sides of beef, and yeah. that's all. You know, that's. That's kind of pretty much gone. There is still some hung beef that you can buy, some hanging beef that you can get, and uh, but it's it's a different thing. But cutting our own beef, even the short loin, means that we really can control. We know what we're getting, right? So they're aging it for us. We could see not only the age, we can see the 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 the, the, the tradition, the things that are really caught, like the the confirmation of the beef and how much fat it has. You know, we can judge the quality of the prime, right? E- 
even in the aged state. Right. So we reject things. Comes in, it's not right, goes back. Wow. Until they send us our beef. And even though they tag our beef for us and they age it for us for 28 days. You still have the option of refusing it if it's not up to your standards. Now, did you take a beef grading course or anything like that? Or is this just experience? This is, uh, this is. 25 years of doing this mm-hmm. you know i've been around a lot of beef and uh a lot of beef i've been around a lot of cheesy things too not to mention the pork but you know but there was a short course actually i don't mean a legitimately short course but you know you used to you used to be able to take a butcher class in um in chicago go for a month and uh well, people do that now up at fleischer yeah they Kingston. do because you yeah. know what there is no professional course anymore they used to right. be really like a butcher school you could go to but um i have a great chef de cuisine mike amirati who's been with me for we've worked together for years and years oh, that's great and he's also a great uh, experienced butcher uh so that you know that's controlling what comes in is the most important factor no question but we'll talk about, about cooking in a second because that was really a question yeah i have some great tips okay jack let's take a quick break and come back in like 30 seconds and we'll go on with like tips and whatnot with michael lamonico porterhouse new york service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune into the Speakeasy every Wednesday at 3 p.m., where host Damon Volte will discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe, with guests ranging from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, and every expert and enthusiast in between. Learn from some of the world's leading experts in mixology, bar history, distillation, and brewing about how we enjoy imbibing today. Again, that's every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. (laughs) We're back. 
This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest in the studio today is Michael Lomonico from Porterhouse, New York City, in the Time Warner Center. Um, thanks again for coming down, Michael. Oh, it's great to be here. So we had um, we had a lively little discussion, but the first thing we want to jump into when we come back now is what are the best ways? What's your favorite cut of steak, and what are the best ways to cook steak? Well, my let me answer the short question. My favorite cut, actually, I really love skirt steaks. Really? And Me too. Uh, my second after that, so does my kid. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> and you know who? But I, 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 that doesn't mean I don't love a great ribeye. I really do. And I am a beef eater. I love beef. I remember, you know, very clearly. We didn't eat as much beef when I was a kid as we do now. I mean, just sort of culturally, you know, how how much beef we really consume in this country. But I do love a great skirt steak. If that's a great open fire cooking, that's a great grill item mm-hmm. i mean some of the we were talking a little bit about dry aged beef yeah and one thing that people if they do go out and get aged beef they have to remember that aged beef has less moisture and it cooks differently and the the cooking of aged beef can be a little tricky because it'll it'll cook more quickly than you think i like a good char in a steak and um, I think whether we do it in a steakhouse like Porterhouse, New York, where we have the high heat broilers, or if we do it over a grill, which we do cook some of our steaks over grills instead of the high heat mm-hmm. broiler, it's a little gentler. Those high heat broilers are 16, 1700 degrees. Wow. And, um, you know, a good, uh, a good grill can get up to be eight, 900 degrees. So, sure. you know, heat, uh, I, I always, uh, uh, you know, if you're gonna, if it sits out at room temperature, it's warming up. I take cold steaks. I like to get a char on a cold steak because my because my broilers are so hot. Right. But that will cool down a grill, so you have to be aware of that. So I always tell people to give it five minutes at room temperature before you put it onto a grill. I season only with salt. I don't season with pepper. Uh, pepper gets bitter in the in the high heat broiling. Good really to know. changes the flavor. Salt is important uh, before you cook it to season with salt to really get that flavor. And uh, you know, really, you don't leave a you don't leave a steak on a fire. You stay with it until it's cooked to the temperature you want it to be. And I always take it rare or medium rare. At yeah. Most. How can people tell? I know there's that trick of like pressing on your you know the joint the muscle around the thumb. Right. Some that, people use that. Right. Or right. And that's spring test. You know, or, that's that's actually a pretty accurate thing. The 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 palm of the hand when it's when it's loose uh, is is what what uh, rare meat would feel like right it's true. squishy it, yeah. and as you stiffen your hand that becomes more towards the well done but dry aged beef always fools you and it always is firmer because it's lacking. 15% of its weight has has evaporated in That's the right. dry aging process. But you know whether it's choice or prime uh choice ages very well too most yeah most right. beef is choice and in the e- open exactly market. so yeah. you can buy aged choice and you're going to have this you're going to confront the same thing it's going to be a little firmer to the touch as you cook it but aged beef has a distinct flavor that's different from uh, uh unaged beef and and you know or that, wet aged or beef. wet aged beef is also a different thing too yeah then the the development of flavor is is what aging is is uh, very crucial to but aging the most important thing about aged beef is what it does is tenderize meat so whether it's dry aged and they've gotten wet aged down to a point where it actually does something it didn't used to but it actually does something now (laughs) wet aged beef helps the enzymatic action within the beef to tenderize the beef so Mm -hmm. that's the greatest benefit of aged beef and i encourage people to do taste tests um and um 
you know, season and go to a butcher yeah. instead of going to the supermarket if you're going to buy a good steak. Yeah, I'm and buy sorry, fresh, but... not frozen. You know, if oh, you, you yeah. know, well, listen. I mean, listen. There, there. You know, if something is frozen properly, it's not a bad thing. Right. Uh, but if you can buy fresh, uh, I, you know, there's a difference between fresh meat and going to one of those big superstores where you're buying, you know, enough beef for your neat for your block. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's building. been frozen, yeah. and now it's been frozen. Right. Out. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, so um, now that we've covered those special tips, there, I wanted to ask you, like, in terms of steaks, do you prefer the grass-fed or the corn-fed? Do you sell grass-fed beef at your restaurant, or do you find it too lean for your purposes? It, it is too lean for me, and it's too lean for really most of the diners and guests who come to, mm-hmm. to Porterhouse. Here's the thing about grass-fed. I, I love the, the flavor of grass-fed beef. In fact, we just got back from a quick trip to, to London. It was just to do a little restaurant scene thing. Nice. And, I, and I had some great beef in a restaurant, and I know it was grass-fed. And I know it was like a heritage kind of a beef that, that I was... And I enjoyed it thoroughly. It's leaner. It's true. But the flavor is different. Uh, what I really like about grass-fed is when it's had enough time to be grass-fed when it's really come of age it's not not too small an animal where it's really right that's that's another you know that's another flavor profile altogether um the leanness of grass-fed beef you have to watch and you have to be careful in the cooking process that you don't cook it too quickly and it'll it'll overcook more quickly because it's because it is leaner but the flavor is different so it's really kind of apples and oranges um i do you know the beef that I use is all natural beef. All of the beef that I use is natural, hormone-free, and antibiotic-free. Right. And it's all, you got to remember, it has spent 95% on, of its life on grass. Yes. And it's really in the finishing of the last 30, 60, or 90 days, the finishing process, where they finish on grain to really put on the fat. Right. And that's the only way that beef gets graded prime is on how much marble, how much fat it has. Yes. And it has to be overall. So, you know, it really is a particular flavor. It's not something you eat every day. And Americans eat huge portions compared to what they serve in, in England. Oh, I'll tell you that. It's ludicrous. So a big old American steak full of fat. I mean, that's like, you know, it's like foie gras. You don't eat it every day. It's a specialty item. Yeah. And it has, um, it has great flavor and character when it's dry-aged prime and that fat, flavor it really changes the the quality the eating is great the tenderness but the flavor is is deep and rich and it's a different kind of a flavor yeah i think so too we sell um we sell a piedmontese beef through heritage and um that is just lovely because it has both it has both of those i mean it is like you say primarily finished on uh on grass but then they do give it a little bit of a corn finish i think and um they're still they're not in a feedlot you know they're still like out on pasture but they give them the grain finish and it i mean patrick brought some to my house last weekend i'm telling you michael it was one of the great steaks of my life well i grilled them outside they were unbelievable i agree i'm a big fan of that of that uh it's a really nice breed yeah Yeah. you know it's a great italian breed and there are there there are people who are just doing great job with it ranchers are doing great job with that beef and i really love it and i run that as a special in my restaurant you know one of the things we do is um we try to serve as much of the animal as we can so we serve skirt steaks we serve hanger steaks we 
serve ribs, uh, strips. Uh, the porterhouse, of course, all comes from the short loin. But we do beef marrow bones. We do mm-hmm. kidneys on, uh, you know, nice. beef kidney as a special, uh, you know, tripe. We serve it to the family every once in a while. Oh, that's great. Uh, just, it, it's, it's not that we're buying a whole animal and we have to use it, but we want to try to use as much as we sure, can. Sure, because it's all out there. It's out there. It all there. needs to be bought and right. used up. Absolutely. Right. And we think it's only fair. Well, that's, that's a good segue into uh, what we were talking about earlier about prices and how prices have changed. And how does a steakhouse, given that um, farmers are being charged now between 7 and $8 a bushel for grain, for corn specifically, um, and those prices are, are you know coming into the distribution network, like for instance, we see a big increase at Heritage, and you must see a huge increase in your prices um, from your wholesalers. How are you managing that? In the restaurant. Right. And very carefully managing it, too. You know what? We've seen beef. Uh, we've seen actually most food prices rising a lot in the last year. And uh, it hasn't really become as big a story in the media as uh, gasoline prices have. Right. Uh, but it's soon to be, I think. Because oh, absolutely. It's, you know, dairy prices have gone crazy. For beef, you know, we're very, very careful. And uh, that means great uh, a great deal of respect for what we buy so we try to utilize everything and that careful cutting you know the doing the butchering ourselves yes. gives us control over this very high commodity it's a very expensive commodity absolutely and um the economics of of a steakhouse and we're kind of steakhouse plus because we serve well, you have other really great things on the menu. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we do Hudson Valley duck and, mm-hmm. you know, we do, uh, you know, heritage breeds of pork. I, I was going to say, you have a couple of pork things, yeah. Uh, organic fish, uh, you know, um, some of the farm-raised salmon that we buy from Scotland is, you know, we have a good mix of, of the menu mix is important to us because it kind of gives us more to work with. So we're not Definitely. focused on just one cut. But managing beef is, um, uh, it's it's a lower margin business than a lot of other restaurants are i mean uh, in in the in the restaurant world model the steakhouse is one of the toughest ones to manage i would think so i mean if you're selling spaghetti it's a whole different ball game right yeah, it's nice to sell spaghetti <laughs> <laughs> you know that's so true no it's so true you know uh <laughs> a real I'm nice not, markup I, on that in, in, in the interest of uh, transparency i do have a pasta dish on my menu yeah but but uh, you know because people actually ask so we, we do have that well, your we, last name is lamonica <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's so true my dream you know my first job was in a great brooklyn restaurant uh monty's venetian room really right by oh, oh, oh monty's right right next to the gowanus canal so oh, oh yeah oh yes oh yes mm, that was my first my first Toxic job water yeah. yeah you mentioned le Cirque. you left out monty's but you know managing you know managing a, a restaurant budget is like anyone manages their household budget it's just that a whole you know it's just in a whole nother um uh realm just on, on sure. but you know we have to balance and we we are very careful and um uh, portion control and waste and you know all of that is is really an important thing in trying to get the maximum yield out of everything we cut right and and use and so honestly we we we're very careful about our inventory and how we manage and control sure. it and we we only uh we had to actually this year was the first year in five years we were open we're just about to have our fifth anniversary and this mm-hmm. year we had to put a, a price increase on beef because it's gone so much Absolutely. it's gone so high for us over the last year and a half it's really incrementally and it hasn't come back down and it's not going to no i hate to tell no. you no <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you know, we're all going to be seeing that more and more at the grocery store. And I right. agree with you. It's amazing how little press coverage uh, we've seen about the dramatic increases in prices. Right. I mean, our farmers are screaming. We, right. have, we see farms going out of business right, left and center who are livestock right. based because they can't make the grain. Uh, and, I, and I feel for them because we really depend on our mm. ranchers. I mean, we really yeah. have a connection, even though we're buying from commodity dealers who age the beef for us. We kind of we really have a connection to the people that they're actually getting. You know, they're a sure. middleman in New York, but right. that's a New York, you know, the New York meat market is is more than 200 years old. That's where the name Porterhouse even comes from, from right. from the New York meat market. So, but the it's really about the ranchers and the farms and, you know, we we care about that. When we, you know, we've used uh, a a great deal of produce from the um uh, from the farmers market and we've always worked it in as our, you know, Steakhouses are probably the most vegetarian safe restaurant you could go to because they're, I mean, good being good for vegetarians because yeah. we have such a variety yeah. of, of vegetables and many, much and of it is organic dishes, yeah. and side dishes that yeah. we can really make yeah. vegetarians very happy if they don't mind the aroma of aged beef. Who but, could, I mean, if it weren't bacon that turned me back to eating meat, it would be the smell of a grilled steak, I gotta say. Well, bacon for me is better than just about any other aroma. Yeah, I kind of agree. Well, everybody I know who was a vegetarian went back to the dark side because they had to eat bacon. And we owe Patrick a great deal of thanks for that, for all we of do. the... Yes, we do, because Heritage really... Heritage breed bacon, oh my it's God. It's so true. It's yeah. so true. It's changed, you know, it's gotten us back to great ingredients, yeah. which we, 20 years ago, we were losing this, you know? And it comes out of the American chefs of the 80s were starting to demand, you know, better and better ingredients. And now, That's right. you know, it's available to, to many people, not yes. just to restaurants. And not it's just, coming, and they're coming into, I mean, we don't, but there are, we're actually thinking of about opening a store, which is kind of an exciting project. That I think it's a great idea. Oh, good! I'm glad you. I'm glad I think you said it's that. I, because yeah. people want it. People... We've been looking at a place in Essex Market, and if all goes well, we'll be opening that up in a couple of months. Well, I but, think um, that's a great idea. You know, I we'll love see that. what happens. I mean, nothing is written in stone yet, but we're we're game to do it, and I think it'd be great for the company. But Michael, before I I send you off because we have about eight more minutes, I do want to chat with you a little bit about what I know you best for, actually, which is your charity work. Um, when Windows on the World, um, you know, when the World Trade Center collapsed, you were like the first chef, I think, who ever sort of like created a project for your workers and a fund for the relief for the families uh, of workers who had died in the Trade Center explosion. And, and so and then you've worked with many other charities since then. So let's talk a little bit about that, because how do you have time for it? Well, you know, community has always been uh, an important part of how I feel uh, about being a New Yorker and the, you know, the good fortune that I've had and the blessings in my life. And I'll tell you, just going back to my first day as a chef, and uh, uh, you mentioned the 21 Club, and I was, and you know, leaving work late at night, and there was a there was a homeless explosion in the late I 80s, early 90s. I do remember that. 90s. I was living here, yeah. And uh, you know, just seeing you know, sort of the 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 humanity and the sadness on the street at night when I'd go home, you know, it kind of really got me involved with um, um, uh, City Harvest then. When right. They only had a couple of vans. And yeah, now they were got, just yeah, starting up they were up just then. starting. And being involved and community-minded is just something I think a lot of people in the food business kind of are naturally drawn to. It does seem that way. Because... Restaurants do it. Yeah, because restaurants give, you know, sort of it's sort of what we do. We want people to to feel good, take care of them, and I think it's a natural. The what after the um, uh, the tragedy of 9/11 and um, the loss of uh, the twin towers and and all of the all of those people, we you know, we at Windows on the World and I was the chef there for 4 years. We we lost 79 of our own people there that Unbelievable. day. Unbelievable. How and traumatic. 
I had great friends who turned to me and said, what are we going to do? And um, uh, uh, really Tom Valenti and Waldy Maloof and uh, some of the uh, some of us from Windows, we, we really all got together with, and I'll believe it or not, there was just some great people from all over the country who said, what can we do? And we put together a committee with, inside of a week. We had 70 or 75 great restaurant people um, and uh, PR people and media people and writers who helped us put together Windows of Hope Family Relief Fund. And I'll tell you, the great success story of of this terrible tragedy, a great story like this that comes out, is that with Windows of Hope Family Relief, we created it to help the families who had lost a, f- a family member who worked in the food service business mm-hmm. in the Twin Towers on that day. And not only did Windows on the World exist, but there were law firms there that had people, and they had a little kitchen, and there were people up at the top of the top of the tower that worked in their kitchen. And so these kitchen and, and dining room workers, there were, uh, there, there were 102 who were lost on that day, and they were nearly forgotten by the media. You know, the sort of people were focusing on, you know, the financial world and that. Well, we were able to raise for their immediate emergency needs, for their health insurance, and for education. That was the mission of Windows of Hope Family Relief Fund. We had a a fundraiser a month later, a dine-out, 4,000 restaurants around the world. Amazing. And a lot of the big food suppliers and um, uh, people in the beverage industry helped. We raised, inside of a year, over $20 million. Whoa! That is really an extraordinary figure. Which was unbelievable. And I'll just say that the important thing is, is we, we stopped fundraising years ago. We, 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 we identified who the families were. Uh, the, the Community Service Society of New York worked with us to administer this thing. Mm-hmm. And there were, you know, 250 family members. Right. We paid for health insurance for five years through the fund. Um, we were the emergency funding for a lot of these families for two years. There was very little coming to them from other sources. Well, I think people need to remember that these were the breadwinners for their families. Right. Or they were sending money home to their native countries, exactly. And that's that was where sort of the impact. Like you didn't really get, you know, people didn't really understand the impact that it had on, you know, a large segment of of society exactly. here and abroad. And uh, and um, and education really became the focus in the last five years uh, for the fund. Mm-hmm. And Great. so we've we've um, the fund has. Uh, has given to the families in, uh, through these three things, emergency aid, health insurance, and education, um, more than half of the money has gone to them. Um, and there's remaining $6 million or so that's just earmarked for education over the next 10 years. It should help put up to the last child until they're 21 years old, uh, uh, help their education until they're 21. So that's, you know, the mission really was to to care for the families in this way. And that's education right. was a big component. And but it's really been very successful in that in that way. That so, is a fabulous story. You know, it was really, it was thousands of people from around the world. I had people coming, they were coming to meet us to present checks from Japan, from Switzerland, from Spain, from Italy. It, w- it was an amazing thing from Latin America. Yeah, totally incredible. Yeah. That's a beautiful so, story, but you're still with City Harvest, and you still do. I, yeah, I'm still. I'm you know I still participate with City Harvest. Uh, share our strength is also right. food, hunger, education uh, have been uh, something that I just think that it's where I feel the the most uh, uh, where I can do some good and be involved is is really you know it it it's something that I I just feel it's important. So Porterhouse New York participates in a lot of events and the fundraisers that, but we. 
we try to be there year after year. And so I've you know been doing those events for over 20 years. And yeah. you know what? It's very rewarding. You get much more back than you ever put out. It's an amazing thing. You know, now there are so many... Uh, uh, there's spoons across America for you know for kids, and yep. I don't know if you've seen that, but we we participated with some of the dinner parties that they you know these these and kids just learn great skills through sort of menu management, menu planning, and putting together a, what sounds fancy a dinner party, but it's really a socialization program that teaches them through food, you know what it means to uh, uh, what what their food source is, how important it is that the foods that they eat and how they prepare it for other people. So that's that's something kind of new. But Spoons Across that's America really cool. was just at the White House doing something a couple of weeks ago with no Jacques kidding. Pepin and and Mich- and, uh, and Mrs. Obama. So wow, you know, so there's, there's, oh, that's awesome. There's, there's great stuff that. to be involved with. Well, I think that you know one thing that um, we have to wrap it up in just a second. But um, I used to be a caterer and. Um, one of the things that always struck me was how, I mean, I grew up in a family that constantly entertained. When my parents were New Yorkers. They moved to the country. And so all of their friends from New York would come and visit. And they would come stay sometimes for a week or two weeks at a time. And we would have these like massive house parties that would go on and on in the summertime. It was really crazy. But anyway, but I grew up knowing how to be hospitable, how to make dinner for more than two people, um, how to welcome people into the house and make them feel comfortable and stuff like that. And I think that is such a lost skill. And when I was catering, 90% of my job was holding somebody's hand through the experience. It was well, unbelievable. So to teach yeah, kids. It's, it, it's a great thing. And it's a great thing to teach when kids. When you talk about socialization, that's what, you know, to me, that's what food is almost most useful as, as a tool to bring people together, to let them talk over the dinner table, to enjoy things communally that otherwise wouldn't happen and well, certainly that, don't happen in the fast food that's culture. That's so true. And that's how, you know, we have this connection through food. And I think Heritage Radio is about that. It's so Absolutely. important to be connected to people. And uh, and food is, the table is the place where it begins. And that's why you say, will you join me at the table? Let's let's break bread together. I mean, these things yeah. have, ha- have real deep meaning. So they do to me. And yeah. I know to many others too. Absolutely. Well, all of us at Heritage Radio Network. Yes, we, we like that. Support Heritage Radio, everybody. <laughs> And go to Porterhouse for Father's Day. Come visit us. Michael. We're doing great steaks for <laughs> Porterhouse, New York, at the Time Warner Center. Yeah, yeah absolutely. it's true. It's true. Thank, thank you, you so much for joining us. Please thank come you. back anytime. We oh, really enjoyed speaking with you. It was a pleasure to meet you face to face. Finally, was, oh, it was delightful to and be here. And you too, Diane. Diane. Michael's wife has been sitting in quietly, grinning at us happily. <laughs> Next thank up you. is Oren Hesterman, and we'll be right back. He wakes up early in the morning Puts on his only blue suit He hasn't quite mastered tying his tie on The way his sweet Sarah used to It's been years since he's talked to the good Lord He's not sure he Church on Sundays now. No, he don't know the words to the old rugged cross, but he sings them the best that he can. Cause he knows that his angel is up there in heaven, and he 
This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We're back with uh, Dr. Oren Hesterman. Our show today is sponsored by the Hearst Ranch, and uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you here. Thank you so much for making the trip out to Bushwick. I know it was a real struggle because I certainly had one myself. It took me a couple hours. So Good, good to be here with you, Katie. That's great. Um, Oren, you need to talk right into the microphone, okay? Um, I'm going to read a little bio for you so that people, because I don't think you're one of those sort of, um, you know, the name on everybody's lips kind of guy, but and yet you have a very... Um, full and prominent background in, you know, the whole sort of fair food, uh, changing the system, uh, 25 years worth of looking for ways to make it better. So Dr. Hesterman is a national leader in sustainable agriculture and food systems. His experience in the philanthropic sector includes more than 15 years as program director for the food systems at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. He also played an essential role in the establishment of the Michigan Food Policy Council and has made significant contributions to the funding of healthy food and farming via his leadership of the Sustainable Agriculture and Food Systems Funders Group. And prior to starting the Fair Food Network, which is where you are now, President and CEO, or however that works, director of. Correct. Dr. Hesterman was the inaugural president of Fair Food Foundation, which is um, basically the same thing, but which lost funding at a certain point, and then you, re- re- you revived like a phoenix, um, leading their sustainable food systems programs. And, uh, and before that, you researched and taught forage and cropping system management, sustainable agriculture and leadership development in the crop and soil sciences department at Michigan State University. So in other words, you have not just the sort of, um, shall we say, philanthropic or, or uh, the policy part of it, but you have the real soil science, the real chemistry background that helps you understand and identify the issues that have come up with the kind of um, farming that we have been practicing for the last... 25, 30, maybe 50 years, right? Yeah, right. My, my background is actually, my academic background is in agronomy and plant genetics. And yeah. Spent quite a few years uh, doing research and teaching and working in extension, so working with farmers all over the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And um, Dr. Hesterman, when you started, um, did you anticipate that your work would lead you to creating um, the Fair Food Foundation? Not really. I mean, you know, I really started life as an organic farmer when mm-hmm. I was younger out in California. Went through a, sort of another career as an alfalfa sprout grower and marketer in California when I was younger. And I really anticipated when I went back to school, got my PhD, started my work at Michigan State University, I really anticipated that my career was going to be in academia. Mm-hmm. But it was my introduction to Kellogg Foundation this you know, great philanthropic foundation in yes. Michigan, right down the road from Michigan State, that really changed my life in this way. Right, because you were a fellow there for years before you began to right, run I was, it. Right, I was a leadership fellow, yeah. uh, Kellogg National Fellow um, at the foundation, and that really helped me see the importance of leadership, leadership development, public policy, all these other areas, you know, that I've always been dedicated to helping us figure out in a collective way, how we're going to feed ourselves in a sane way that's going to protect our resources and our soil for the future. But what I really realized through that leadership program is, you know, one stroke of a poli- of a pen by a policymaker can have a lot more impact than the career of an agronomist. So <laughs> yeah. I decided that I wanted to try to combine the science, but really start looking at policy and 
and uh, institutional practice and other kind of ways to change the system. So um, one of the quotes that I picked up out of your um, out of the Q&A that's on your website, which I thought was really terrific, was um, here's the quote is we have never had a moment as full of possibility for change as we have right now. It's not just the moment for this book, your book being called Fair Food, Growing a Healthy, Sustainable Food System for All, which came out quite recently. Just this week. Oh, this week is just hitting this the bookstores pu- now. This is publication week. Oh, cool. Um, I actually saw it at uh, BEA, which I went to. And I said, oh, I'm having him on the show next week. <laughs> they were clueless. Anyway, uh, your publisher was clueless. Um, anyway, what is it about this moment that leads you to believe that major changes are in the offing? How do you think uh, we are going to be able to really drive uh, change in the food system that aligns with what your philosophy is about how we should be? Uh, conducting our food business. Well, Katie, I, I really think we're actually at an historical moment right now. Um, the level of awareness about both the effects of our food system, all the different all the different symptoms, especially when I think about the the spiraling rates of obesity and diet related illness, mm-hmm. and we see the level of awareness hitting all the way to the White House with our First Lady Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign. God bless her. <laughs> I see it in, you know, top levels of the federal government as we did the reauthorization of the Child Nutrition Act and money now going into farm to school, federal money going into farm to school programs. You know, eight years ago, you could only identify four farm to school programs anywhere in the country. There are now 10,000. Really? That's how fast this is growing. I actually just connected with somebody on LinkedIn who's running one in Arizona. So, so, yeah. so I mean, on, on the one hand, you have this kind of explosion of awareness, resources, activity, and action. At the same time, you're having this upswell in obesity and diet-related illness. But we also see it at the commercial level. I mean, everything from Whole Foods to local restaurants and stores, like where we're sitting right now. Yeah to the explosion of farmers' markets, tripling in, since 1995. But the place where I see it happening that gives me the most optimism and promise that this change is really happening is what's happening at the community level, mm-hmm. everywhere I go. I've and that includes the, the, the deep Midwest, because I'll be honest with you, I mean, I went to an, a USDA conference on sustainability last year in um, D.C., and my experience was I was getting up and challenging some of the people, some of the panelists, and um, asking pointed questions about current farming practices. And believe me, I was not a popular person at that conference. I mean, really not popular, to the point where people would come up to me afterwards and, you know, challenge me and say, well, what do you think should, you know, how do you think we're going to do it if we don't do it the way we're doing it now? We can't feed this many people. And when you read the trade papers, like Meeting Place or Drover's Cattle Network, all of which I read quite religiously, their attitude is, we're going to have a tremendous increase in population. Um, The way that we uh, farm now creates efficiencies that cannot be denied. Um, And, uh, you know, I don't see how you can do it any better than we're doing it. We're perfect. Well, I will agree with them that we have great efficiencies in the system. Absolutely. And there are a lot of things we're doing right. But to say that, that we have to keep doing it this way, um, doesn't work in my view because you can't keep farming. You can't keep uh, creating a food system 
that's causing a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico that's growing every year. It's going to be the largest this year. But how are you going to make been. farmers who want to have a huge crop, who want to like double or, or increase by a certain percentage? I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I mean, I really want to know because I know that you have these, you're seeing this as a system, which is mm-hmm. how I see it, as opposed to seeing you know little bits and pieces being things we can improve mm-hmm. incrementally. I want to see the system change. So, um, so when you see a farmer who, first of all, is making more money growing corn or soy than he's ever made in his entire life how do you how do you persuade him that he should be using um say organic grains which don't give as much as many bushels per acre or that he shouldn't use a certain type of fertilizer or pesticide or that he shouldn't be using monsanto products um how how do you convince those guys they want that money they need it i have uh i take lessons from my years in extension Mm -hmm. and i actually don't try to convince a farmer to do anything what I do is, um, it's, it's all about choices and decisions that people make. And um, I love this, there's a wonderful quote by Buckminster Fuller. You know, he says, if you want to change a system, don't fight against it. The way to change a system is to build a better model. Right. And then the system will shift toward that model. Oh, so I think I, I love you. So That's I th- exactly how I feel. So I think about uh, Fred Kirshenman. Uh-huh. Good friend and farmer, North Dakota. 3,100 acres of organic grain production since the mid-70s, grain and livestock. And I've gotten to know his farming system pretty well. I've talked with him about it. I've learned about it. And, you know, it's, it's a beautiful system that is efficient. It's making money. It's got good markets for the grains he's growing. Mm-hmm. He's got a very good complex crop rotation going on. And um, I don't have to, you know convince him of anything and he doesn't have to convince his neighbors of anything because when people start seeing that what he's doing is working shifts start to happen now the important uh point to think about is how our systems right now are driven through public policy largely yes and so even in talking with fred his biggest challenges at times are being able to keep a complex crop rotation going, not just on his farm, but in his county and the whole area surrounding his farm, because we have to look at it as an ecosystem. Right. To be able to do that as public policies, as farm bill policies, encourage farmers to do otherwise. So how do you think that far, I mean, is this message being received well by farmers? I mean, I have a note here. It's like, by what mechanism can we encourage farmers who grow commodity crops like corn and soy now um, and who are actually making money? How do we encourage them to switch to more labor intensive practices that include livestock, a diversity of row crops or other commodity crops? I mean, what's their incentive to make those changes? Because it seems to me that you have to work harder as a farmer to make that work. Well, the uh, the incentive for any business person is finding a market and making money, right? And incentives in our food and agricultural system also come from the government side. So it takes two approaches. Yeah, right, like corn subsidies. It, it How takes do you persuade the, somebody it, not to do that? Right, so it takes the approach <laughs> of shifting public policy. So mm-hmm. if, if we believe as a society that we need to shift our system to more diversity in our cropping systems, in our agricultural systems, which I believe. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that's the better way to go. There is no reason why we can't create public policies that instead of incentivizing farmers to grow just one or two crops, could incentivize farmers to be more diverse, grow a greater diversity of crops. Right. And then on the other hand, as demand builds 
for more locally and regionally produced products. And it is happening in the Midwest. I mean, that's where I'm from. That's where I live. And we see the explosion in demand for local and organic in Michigan, just like we see all over the country. Mm -hmm. That as that demand is perceived as stable, as real, and as credible, farmers start making the switch to fill that demand. So it's about both helping encourage to the um, shift in demand and making shifts in public policy. And the third component is to make sure that we are starting to rebuild our regional food infrastructure. Yeah, which is something we talk about here on Heritage all the time. I mean, virtually every you know couple of weeks we have somebody on and we end up talking about the real bottleneck, especially with livestock, is that there are no slaughtering and processing facilities. It's all, as you say on your website many times, that uh, beef processing or meat processing in general has been... Uh, concentrated into four major companies 80 and, per, 80 percent yeah of and they're driving they're driving companies. a lot of that market so um anyway my next question for you sir <laughs> with so many people leaving farm life who is going to be growing these crops like how do we attract people back to farming because it is really hard work and it doesn't often pay a whole lot. You're not right. going to get rich like you are on Wall Street. Right. You may feel better about yourself. You may enjoy your life, but most people find that, you know, you, I think you have to be a very specific mindset to want to work on a farm. I mean, how, the, how do you make it more attractive? You know, Katie, the good news is, as we even look at USDA statistics of who is farming now compared to seven or eight years ago, yeah, I was gonna say. The, the only demographics that we see of uh, increased farm ownership and operators are women and minorities, especially Hispanics, mm -hmm. and most of them are younger. Yeah. So we see, uh, you know, some young women who are starting to understand that this is a business enterprise that they can get into and make a living at. Isn't that interesting? Like, it is. I didn't know that, Oren. That is very interesting. It's very. And I think it comes largely because women are concerned about what they're feeding their children. And in addition, uh, we, we have now some really first-class training programs in this country for young people who want to get into farming. Mm -hmm. um, I think of the one close to me in Michigan, the Student Organic Farm at Michigan State University. It's about a nine-month training program for folks to come and learn about organic farming and marketing, learning how to uh, extend the growing season using hoop houses, They've got to see they at that farm at Michigan State. These students are running a forty-eight week CSA. So wow. the only reason That's it's impressive. not fifty-two weeks is because they want a couple week break <laughs> at Christmas and a couple yeah. week break in the spring. But other than that, they are producing food year round in a northern climate, and they have a CSA with a waiting list on it. And it's a training program. Yeah. So and as students come out of that program, they are starting to farm. Some of them starting to farm in urban areas actually even in Detroit, and some of them starting to farm in uh, more rural areas. So you're seeing, uh, say, in a city like Detroit, like here in New York, and especially like the guys at Roberta's who own this restaurant, they started the Brooklyn Grange, in, which is the largest rooftop garden, I think, in the country. It's one full acre, and they became profitable, maybe not profitable, but they started to almost break even by the end of their first year. And there's a few other places in New York. And there's we also have had... Um, 
uh, Dixon de Pommier on to talk about vertical farming. Mm-hmm. What do you think about those programs? Do you think those are likely to really um, become large enough, viable enough to really provide uh, urban dwellers with sufficient regional produce? Or do you think that's just kind of um, a bit of a pie-in-the-sky model that's trendy, it's cool, people are going to be interested, but it's not really going to be viable economically for the long term? I think it's a both-and. It could be mm-hmm. viable economically on a small scale, but to think about actually producing the amount of food you need for the millions of people in a place like New York City yeah. on rooftops, uh, I, I kind of doubt that's ever going to happen. So I always say it's a both-and. I mean, we need to, uh-huh. you know, as we look at this system, how broken it is and how many people need to eat good, healthy food, we need to try everything possible. And how many more of them there are going to be in yes. the, by 2015. On the other hand, I look at Detroit where there's now the greening of Detroit is now supporting 1,600 community gardens, backyard gardens, and school gardens this summer, over 300 acres of land being cultivated um, just in those gardens. Within the the city. Within the city limits of Detroit. So, again, that's not enough to to feed a population of the city of Detroit, but uh, it's for those families that are able to have some property and get the training they need and have the have the resources to get started it's a makes a big difference to them mm-hmm. one of the things that you talked about on your website um was about food desert and the link between health nutrition and the obesity epidemic and food related illnesses and and um one of the things that i i'm constantly talking about on this program is that really nobody knows how to cook anymore there are very few people who um, either have the time, the resources, or the financial um, resources to buy f- quality food and actually cook it. Of course, you know, we all know it's like 59 cents for a pound of beans, of black beans or something. But if you don't grow up with a tradition of that, or you get no training in school, no vocational training of any kind, or your parents don't cook, how, how are you going to learn how to utilize those products to make it to feed back into the rural community to encourage them to grow more of that stuff. I mean, it is, it is a loop that has to work. How, how, how do you address that? You know, when we first started our work at uh, Fair Food Foundation and Fair Food Network, we did a little research project. We looked at the food environments, and specifically we looked at Detroit and West Oakland, mm-hmm. California. And we wanted to ask questions of residents. Rather than go from the perspective of what we thought the problems were, we actually went and set up focus groups, interviews, surveys with residents. Everything from teens to seniors across racial and ethnic lines, across socioeconomic lines. And what we found was that the everybody understands and experiences the disparity in access to healthy and fresh food in those communities. Mm-hmm. What really surprised me in the research was the extent to which these families understood what good food is and what good food isn't. So the issue of knowledge about what's healthy food and what's not healthy food is there. And the other thing that surprised me was most of the meals that are eaten in those neighborhoods are meals cooked at home. And so what I started realizing was that while... It's important to think about those people who need help to learn how to cook. The primary issue is lack of access to healthy food. Interesting. 
that when you're living in a place where uh, a food desert yeah. where there's there's not even a full service supermarket right and farmers markets are hard to get to there's no co-op grocery store I mean, you're faced with the only, I mean, you know. You're it's going not, to a bodega. A bodega or, you know, in some places. Green peppers, onions. A gas station. Tomatillas. Gas station convenience store. Yeah. It's not uncommon in Detroit to be asked, what gas station do you buy your groceries at? No way, really. Really. I've never been to Detroit. But, I mean, in Oakland, I know that they have more, they have a big Latino population. So, they have more of the bodega culture there. So which has a little more. Going uh, you know, when, especially when you talk about vulnerable and low-income populations, something that isn't that everybody doesn't know but of the 166,000 vendors that are licensed to receive food stamps mm-hmm. in this country only 34,000 of them are categorized as grocery stores or supermarkets by USDA and who are the That's other ones That's 20%. The other 80% would be pharmacies, convenience stores, bodegas, um bakeries, liquor stores, you can't Party use stores. food stamps to use SNAP to use to buy liquor. You go and start looking around some of these neighborhoods, and um, you will find that many liquor stores accept SNAP. Of course, you can't buy liquor, but tell me what kind of food you can buy in a liquor store. Peanuts and limes and lemons. And candy bars <laughs> and... Cigarettes. Well, you can't, you can't, you can't buy cigarettes, can't buy cigarettes with, snap. With, with SNAP. But the, the point I'm making is that the the it, the first issue the first line issue is access that that we have to make sure that people in these communities have opportunities to choose better food whether they're spending snap dollars or their own dollars and that's just not happening yet interesting jack let's take a 1 minute break and uh, come back with Dr. Oren Hesterman. This is the main course. My name is Katie Kiefer. Um, and we'll be right back to talk about institutional buying. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, 261 Moore Street. And if you're not uh, trying to get here from Manhattan, um, let me tell you, there's plenty of tables for once. Um, (laughs) Our sponsor today is Hearst Ranch Corporation. And my guest in studio right now is Dr. Oren Hesterman, a major mover and shaker in the... um, Sustainable Food Movement. He has a new book that's just coming out this week. It's called Fair Food, Growing a Healthy, Sustainable Food System for All. Uh, Dr. Hesterman is a um, not only a soil scientist uh, and instructor, but has been um, absolutely uh, profoundly involved in, in changing our system or examining and looking for ways to improve our system for the last 25, 30 years. So um, one of the things that I saw, um, Dr. Hesterman, on your, um, on your website was a very interesting... 
uh, moment where you say, I think of taking the percentage of public money used to buy food for schools, prisons, universities, and public cafeterias from the tiny number that now goes to local sustainably produced food to 20, 30, or even 50%. We need to utilize our federal nutrition assistance money more effectively and in a redesigned system that's where it would be going. It would be going for, um, I especially like the idea of prisons for some reason, because I know that prison food is, um, you know, traditionally very bad. Like it's the worst, it's the cheapest, it's, you know, and I think about the nutritional impact that must have aside from the psychological impact of eating crap, uh, three times a day, but the nutritional impact that it has on the prison population. And I love the idea of using local, farms to supply more of the ingredients. Do you think that federal policy will, or since most prisons are privately owned now, let's forget about federal policy, since most private, most prisons are privately owned, how, how would you be able to affect a switchover from them uh, using the lowest common denominator of food products from broadline distributors into sourcing more regionally and locally? Like, how could that happen? So actually, in many places, the prisons are uh, state-run. So you can start looking at, at state policy as well. Uh-huh. But, you know, what I think about is, is the amount of money that we are spending institutionally. The point I'm trying to make is that so many of us have been thinking for so many years that the way to change the system is to change my own personal behavior. Right. And that if I just decide to buy different food, put different food in my refrigerator, that's going to make the difference. And I don't believe that to be the case. I, I agree with That's you. That's one step we need to take. But another really major step is to make sure as engaged citizens, so instead of only seeing ourselves as conscious consumers, mm-hmm. we start engaging as fair food citizens. And that means using our power as a citizen to ask our public officials, elected and appointed, to start, start spending our tax money on food on food that is better for the people who are being served, but is also better for the environment and better for our economy. Right. You know, I, we did a study in, in uh, southeast Michigan to look at what would be the economic consequences of shifting 20% of our food-buying dollars to more locally produced, processed, and distributed food. Mm-hmm. And it's profound. We could create, in five counties of southeast, southeast Michigan, we could create 35,000 new jobs by localizing 20% of the food system. That's amazing. And you don't do that only through individual purchasing. You have to do that also through purchasing for hospital cafeterias, right. school cafeterias. Schools, universities. Absolutely. absolutely. All the institutions. Right. Yeah, that's what caught, struck my eye about that particular segment of your Q&A. I thought that was a really interesting point because these are these are consumers that are huge. I mean, I looked up, for instance, the statistics on, on Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. And um, they're feeding three meals a day to about 2,500 prisoners seven days a week i mean that is a huge amount right. of food right huge so it so it means it's a huge potential lever exactly. in the system exactly now how do you think that um that policy on the state or federal level can be moved to force that kind of interaction with community and that implies also that there is some sort of state or federal investment in infrastructure because as we mentioned before local infrastructure local processing local warehousing etc aggregation doesn't really exist so how i mean first it seems to me we have to get that into place and then we have to 
push these contracts away from broadline distributors. Forgive me, Cisco and U.S. Foods, um, <laughs> and into these regional uh, distribution networks. You know, it's really it's really a both and because I I think about in order to create these regional food distribution networks and in order to help farmers see there's a economic potential here, there needs to be a believable market for them. Uh-huh. And one way to create a believable market is through contracts with these institutional buyers. Right, because that ensures farmers that they're going to sell their product. Right. They don't right. have to worry if they invest extra money in infrastructure on the farm, like, say, a hoop house or a greenhouse or something like that, that they're not going to suffer an economic loss if they don't manage to sell it all in the farmer's market. So I, I should mention one project that we're doing at Fair Food Please Network. Do. It's called Double Up Food Bucks. And mm-hmm. this is a project where um, any a program in which anybody who's got their food stamp card, mm-hmm. their SNAP card in uh, any farmer's market in Michigan... And they go to a farmer's market and spend, say, $20 off their SNAP card. Right. They get $40 worth of product. Exactly. We have that that here in New York at our green market And the extra $20 only gets spent on locally grown fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. Right. That's happening with Health Bucks in New York. It's happening several other places around the country. So our next project with this is is to start viewing these kinds of incentives as a demonstration to demonstrate the feasibility and effectiveness of using incentives to encourage low-income families to get healthy food for their families and support the local food economy. So our work now is starting to shift from solely being in the community to also being in Washington, D.C. Right. And that's what we need to do with institutional well, purchasing as well. That leads me to my last question because we have to wrap it up in a couple of minutes. But um, last week I interviewed um, Gary Hirschberg from Stonyfield, mm-hmm. but who is also part of Agri or Agree. And I wondered, I mean, since they have obviously many of the same objectives that you do, I wondered how much you guys are and, and other like-minded organizations are able to come together uh, to create a sort of more, um, I hate to use the word leverage, but to leverage more um, lobbying power towards um, some of the more entrenched interests in traditional or, you know, uh, monoculture type agricultural um, processes. Well, it really it really needs to happen, and it's starting to happen. Um, I I've been able to view this from the perspective for the last three farm bills from the perspective of a funder. When mm-hmm. I was at Kellogg Foundation, we supported a lot of organizations working to try to create more progressive policies in the farm bill. So I right. I've kind of seen the good, bad, and the ugly when it comes to progressive <laughs> organizations trying to work together right. on changing public policy, changing the farm bill. And absolutely we need organizations figuring out how to work together. My take on this after many years of funding and watching and evaluating, seeing what's going on, is that the more focused we can be in our approach the better off we are. And that's why a number of organizations now are focusing on just a few issues like healthy food incentives or healthy food finance, bringing that, f- that Pennsylvania model of fresh food finance. Yeah, they have a really cool thing going the, on there. To yeah. the federal level or mm-hmm. regional food infrastructure. Take just, just two or three issues and try to get everybody to be focusing on them. Yeah, that seems like a good idea to me. Absolutely. Because it is, I mean, when we, we have so many farms, uh, so many farmers and so many people in that sort of middle range of distribution that say, here's the biggest problem. It just, the infrastructure just isn't Right, there. we can't expect every farmer 
to be direct marketing they to consumers. Can't. They can't go to farmers market, especially livestock guys, and they have to drive their animals to a process, you know, to a processor fifty miles away, and then drive it back down and store it somehow, and then take it to a farmers market. I mean, we actually are launching a pro- a, um, a project around goats, male goats for dairy farms, um, to try to help them you know, get out from under dealing with their bucklings because they have just as many bucklings as they do use or nannies when they, when the babe, when the animals kid. So um, unfortunately we have to call it a day here. Dr. Oren Hesterman, author of fair food, growing a healthy, sustainable food system for all. I urge people to go look at the website, which is um, www.fairfood.org. It's huh? actually fairfoodnetwork.org. Oh, I'm sorry, And um, read more about the fantastic work that you're doing. I mean, it's just great. It's really exciting to have somebody like you come and visit us here. Well, thank you so much. I, it's a pleasure visiting you I hope you you'll today. be back. I really do. I'll look forward to it. I mean, I'd it. love to do like a follow-up on um, the farm bill in a few weeks and or months or whatever and uh, see where things are going. So thanks again great. for joining us today. You're very welcome. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Uh, Our near neighbors and trading partners, Mexico and Canada, filed a suit recently with the World Trade Organization protesting the implementation of COOL, or Country of Origin Labeling. I, for one, have kind of appreciated COOL because it tells me where my seafood comes from and I don't always want to eat shrimp from Thailand. But in the uh, World Trade Organization panel, they issued a preliminary ruling on the case that Canada and Mexico filed against the U.S., stating that the mandatory COOL requirements do not meet the United States' stated objective that the labeling law informs and helps U.S. consumers make purchasing decisions regarding the origin of their meat, produce, and other products covered by the labeling law. COOL started out as a voluntary labeling program in the Farm Security and Rural Investment Act of 2002, which was the Farm Bill then. It had specified that COOL would include pork, beef, lamb, fish, perishable agricultural products, and peanuts, and that it would become a mandatory requirement by September 30th, 2004. It actually was not implemented until 2009. I'm sure you've noticed, uh, especially on your fish counter. However, opposition was mounted by numerous agricultural groups, including the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and the National Pork Producers Council as well as from packers, processors, and retailers. Cool opponents argued that the program costs would far outweigh the benefits, which were not well determined, and that the marketplace and consumers should drive the need for such programs. Also, the consensus was that the effort driving cool smacked of protectionism. Well, I can understand how they'd feel that way, um, because we buy so much uh, young cattle from Mexico and Canada, and then it ends up being finished and processed here in the United States. And of course, we buy it very cheap from those countries, and then we can market up here. So the packers, uh, processors, etc., make much more money than they would on cattle that they buy from the U.S. So um, anyway, long term, if the WTO ruling stands, the United States will have to dissolve mandatory cool or risk trade retaliations from Mexico and Canada, both of whom are major U.S. trading partners. So it's something to ponder. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Keeper. Check out a small clip from the food scene hosted by Michael Harlan Turkell 
a show where food and art intersect. I think most recently you had a chocolate waterfall that had five tons uh, of chocolate flowing, <laughs> and you'd put on, what, a protective suit, walk through a waterfall, yeah. make your own chocolates within this kind of contained mm-hmm. environment. Um, and most recently, a rabbit cafe. Yeah. Can you explain that one to me a little bit? Well, I mean, and this also slightly comes from jellies as well, because in England, everyone has these uh, rabbit jelly molds. It's the most popular mold. Everyone goes, oh, I had rabbit jellies yeah. as a kid. <laughs> and we've always been utterly bewildered by it. Why, why rabbit jellies? The only way to get to the bottom of it was to get a whole herd of rabbits, open a cafe with them, and have people touch rabbits and eat. Yeah. Um, so it kind of has resonance with uh, one, of, one of our favourite cookbooks, which we think an awful lot of uh, you know, modern chefs have, have as their dark secret under their pillow, <laughs> um, which is the future. Want to hear more? Well, tune into the food scene live every week, Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Or you can find all the archive shows on our website or subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. Thanks for listening.